This morning we're going to hear about the big R word. Can you think what the big R word might be? Big R word is reverence. Reverence. We're going to hear about reverence. Children, I didn't say reference. Like you might have a reference book. I said reverence. And I looked in the dictionary. Reverence, it says, is to deeply or highly respect someone. And I'm talking about reverence for God. Really respecting God. Reverence. What do you think of the word reverence? I reckon nearly everyone thinks reverence is old fashioned. Not everyone, but most people think reverence is old fashioned. You might hear the word reverence and you think of a period drama where you see these Victorians in stiff collars walking in a funeral procession looking very solemn and pretty miserable. And you think that's reverence. It's old fashioned stuff. I don't want anything to do with that. Others, oh, they talk a lot about reverence and they're very clear. Reverence is a good thing. But they also think, well, it's old fashioned because because they presume reverence is sticking to the old way. New ways uh, tend to be informal and informal means irreverent. So it tends to be from both sides. People are often thinking reverence, that's an old thing. But we can't afford to think of reverence like that because we need reverence and we need to be clear on what it really is. Now, why do I say we need reverence? Because the Bible says and repeatedly says the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. Fear of God. And the fear of God is a very strong phrase for reverence. And it says it's the beginning of wisdom. You can't even start to be wise. You can't even start to have proper understanding of God unless you fear him. You have a deep reverence for him. You can't be a Christian without this because you haven't started to understand God unless you have reverence. So my aim this morning is that we have reverence as the Bible describes it, not mistaken ideas of it. And our method for getting this is to learn from the history recorded in 2 Samuel 6. So if you've got a Bible, would you turn again to 2 Samuel chapter 6? 2 Samuel chapter 6. We're going to take this chapter in two halves. First half is verses 1 to 11. And then we're going to have a second half, verses 12 to 23. Two halves, both about reverence. Here's the first half. Reverence causes obedience. This is verses 1 to 11. It could also be called a warning to casual worshippers. We're going to hear the story, then we're going to think how it applies to us in each half. So, let's hear the true story. It happened so quickly you'd hardly know what had happened. One minute, the music was blaring, and it was like a party in full swing, and the next minute, this man Uzzah is dead on the floor. And everyone's in stunned silence. You're told that the oxen had stumbled a bit, and the ark they were pulling on a cart had shaken a bit, And Uzzah had put out his hand to steady it, and now he's dead on the floor. What's gone on? Well, let's go back a bit and get a bit of background to what's going on. This was long before the birth of Jesus. We're talking about thousands of years ago to us, hundreds of years before Jesus. David was the king of Israel at the time. 
And he was bringing the Ark of the Covenant to his capital, Jerusalem. So he was bringing together the symbol of God being with his people and the symbol of David being king. Significant point in history. The Ark of the Covenant was this box covered in gold and it had in it the Ten Commandments. And it was to be treated carefully because it represented the presence of God. God being with his people. So why was this man Uzzah now lying on the floor dead? The Bible says it's because God struck him down. God struck him down. You see it therein. I'll have to find the verse. You might before me because I haven't noted it down. Verse 7. God struck him down. But why is Uzzah on the floor dead? Why would God do such a thing? Do you believe in a God that would do things like that? It wasn't God in a temper. It isn't God as an arbitrary tyrant. One day he strikes this person, another day he blesses that person. It's just what mood he's in. God had given rules and they were clear and they were straightforward. You can find them in a book in the Bible earlier on called Numbers. And it basically said, don't touch the ark. Don't look at the ark. It's to be kept covered. And don't have a cart to carry the ark on. It's to be carried by the priests in the way that God said. That meant it wasn't touched and it wasn't looked at. And the rules had been broken. And Arza is dead on the floor. It's telling us, here's a God you can't mess around with. Here's a God you don't have a natural right to have anything to do with. It's my right. I should be able to do what I like with God. No, no, he's not like that. He's a God who, if you're going to have any dealings with him, is going to have to be done his way, not your way. And so verse 7 describes what Asa did as, you see it in verse 7, an irreverent act. He wasn't reverent towards God. Irreverent act. There's nothing to say that Uzzah was playing the clown. There's nothing to say that Uzzah was acting the fool. Uzzah was trying to steady the ark. But it was an irreverent act because things weren't being done God's way. His clear, straightforward laws were being ignored by people who thought they know better and I'm sure God will be okay with it. And so that helps us with understanding what reverence is. We're here to understand what reverence is, so we will have that reverence. It tells us reverence is such an awareness of who God is, that you know things have to be done his way. You can't just say, I'll do things my way, and I'm sure God will be fine with it. Reverence is such an awareness of who God is, that you know things must be done his way. There's the story. I've started to move towards applying it to us. Let's, let's now get into applying it to us. What should this do for us? It should kill off thoughts of God should be pleased with my efforts, my good intentions. Yeah, I've got a vague idea the Bible says certain things I should do and certain things I shouldn't do, but we don't need to pin that down too tightly because my heart's in the right place and I'm sure God will be fine with things. 2 Samuel 6 says you can't think like that. 
Because that is such a low view of God. It is not reverence. It's a bit like this. Imagine, imagine I turn up to the Royal Albert Hall, to the BBC proms with my violin. And there they are playing Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony. And I make a bit of an attempt at Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony. By the way, I can't play the violin. But I think it's quite a good attempt. I'm really putting my effort in. I, I think I'm getting near the mark. I think Rachmaninoff ought to be pleased with my efforts. No, you, no of course you think he shouldn't. Because he's Rachmaninoff. And he's a great composer. And he's written how his symphony should be. And so it should be his way. Ah, but God, God, God is so needy. He gets so little attention these days, doesn't he? He should be pleased with you, shouldn't he? At least you're turning up to church. Think of all the thousands in Loughborough who don't even turn up and don't pay God any attention. Shouldn't he be pleased with you? At least you're turning up and paying him some attention. Do you see, our views of God often are so low. We think he should just be pleased with us instead of setting how things should be done. 2 Samuel 6 says, see who God is. See that he doesn't need your help. See that he has standards he won't adapt for you. And get your standards into line with his. I spoke to a man a while ago and um, he was at church but his wife didn't come but he said to me she's not a christian she's clear she's not a christian but i say her life's been good i think god will be pleased with her i think she'll be in heaven sounds nice sounds reasonable but it's an utter lack of reverence because what's he doing he's saying god i'm sure will adapt to my standards not i should adapt to god's standards Let's think a bit more about uh, about how this applies to us. Uh, just last week, I was in a place in Derbyshire called Aston-on-Trent, and I saw there a display for the Queen's Diamond Jubilee. It had photos of 1952, when she became queen, events in the village, and it had photos of events in the village in 2012, when it was her jubilee. Interesting looking at the differences. I wonder if you can guess some of the differences. Children, an obvious one would be that 1952 photos were in black and white, the 2012 were all in colour. But another difference was this, 1952 looked so formal. All the men were in suits and ties. All the women were in smart dresses. All the people were seated in rows at very formal, orderly looking events. 2012 looked really casual. Everything looked much more casual. We're, we're in a society that values informality and casualness. The other week here at church, someone from a different culture was surprised at someone calling me, the minister, by my first name. And it was a young person calling me by my first name. Uh, we're in a society that's informal. Previous generations, that wouldn't be done. That's rather informal. Now, I'm not commenting on the rights or wrongs of our society has become much more informal. Most of it isn't a matter of right or wrong. But we have to think about this. Our society always affects our worship. How does this affect our worship? Do we tend to value in our worship what is casual, informal, laid back, 
or, or ordinary, or we don't want it to seem not ordinary. We don't want it to seem a bit odd. We like things to seem ordinary. Well, 2 Samuel 6, what does that have to say about that? Is approaching the God of the universe ordinary? Is it casual? Is it laid back? I think asking the question probably makes the answer self-evident. Surely approaching the God of the universe is extraordinary, is intense, is careful. Now, remember, the issue here is obedience. I mean, some people actually really don't like casual. Some people are very definitely into formal. They prefer formal. But it's possible to be like that and it not to be anything to do with reverence. It just be what we like, what we're comfortable with, what we're used to. But reverence is awareness of God such that we're not asking, what do I like? What makes me comfortable? What am I used to? But what does this God say I should be doing? Reverence is such an awareness of God that we see I've got to approach him his way. I've got to be doing things how he says. Now, it's possible that you might be thinking, this is very Old Testament. Wow, this is a different world. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 6. I'm glad we're not in the Old Testament. I'm glad we've moved beyond that. God being strict and striking people dead. Yes, we have moved beyond us of being struck dead. We've moved into the New Testament age. To Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Who was struck with every ounce of God's anger against sin. So that the well-loved son cried out, why, God, have you forsaken me? As the Lord of life was struck dead. Far more than 2 Samuel 6, the cross of Jesus should make us aware of God. That we don't approach him casually. We can't just do things our way. No, we approach him his way. And he says, you need my son. You need him so much he's had to come and die to pay for you not obeying me. Let's move into the second half of the chapter. Verses 1 to 11 was reverence causes obedience. The second half is reverence causes intense worship. This is verses 12 to 23. And it could be called a warning to cold worshippers. Reverence causes intense worship. Let's get back into the story. Verse 12 is the turning point of the chapter. Verse 12. Now, King David was told, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and everything he has because of the ark of God. It's the turning point in the chapter when David hears the presence of God can bring blessing instead of death. It brought death in the first half of the chapter. It brings blessing now. Verse 12 onwards. And so again, David has another attempt at let's get the ark into Jerusalem. Let's bring together my kingdom and God with his people. Now, you'd think something like this. This time David's learned his lesson. This time it will be done solemnly. This time more like a funeral procession and less like a carnival. Tone down the music, lengthen our faces. Let's be spiritually contemplative. Because only such an atmosphere is worthy of this Lord. But that's not the lesson. 
No, if you think that, you've missed the lesson. Because the lesson is, obey God and worship his way. The lesson is, this terrifying God also brings blessing. He brings reason for joy. And so, if you read on from verse 12, you find there's music. And there's more than music, there's dancing. And there's shouting. And there's gifts. And there's blasting the trumpets. And there's an extravagant celebration. And it's nothing like a funeral. It is like a carnival atmosphere. It's amazing what the Bible puts together that we tend to think are separate. It's well worth, as you read the Bible, spotting what things does the Bible put together that we tend to think they can't go together. We tend to think of them as quite separate. Reverence and joy, now they're quite separate, we think. I went to a church once to visit uh, where, when I went in, wow, everyone looked miserable and it was utterly silent. And I tried smiling at some people. I'm not a very smiley person, but I tried smiling at some people and saying hello to them. They looked at me like I was some madman and carried on being miserable. Well, they looked. I can't say being miserable. I don't know. But they looked it and silent. Oh, we say that's a reverent type of church. Well, you don't. Is it? Is that a misunderstanding of reverence? I visited once another church where everyone was dancing around and pogo sticking. They didn't have pogo sticks, but they were boinging everywhere. And the man at the front at some point said, some people here aren't dancing enough. And he seemed to be looking at me. And he could have missed the word enough off the end of that sentence. And it would have been true. Ah, we say, that's a joyful type of church. Well, is it? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe not. You see, we have our visions of there are reverent churches and there are joyful churches and they're two very different types of church. But God has no embarrassment at putting together in one chapter deepest reverence, trembling at who God is and highest joy, dancing with delight at who God is. Because reverence is awareness of God. And God both strikes dead and gives blessing. Reverence is not in contrast with joy. Reverence is not in tension with joy. Reverence goes with joy because reverence is awareness of who God is. And he is terrifyingly holy and he is stunningly generous. They're together in this chapter. They ought to be together in this church. Are they together in your heart? Awareness of the God who is terrifyingly holy and stunningly generous. Now, I was going to say we're moving now from the story to applying it to us. I suppose I've started doing that. But 2 Samuel 6 says God should be feared because he strikes dead. God should be desired because he gives blessing. David feared God, verse 8, verse 9. But verse 12, David desired God and says, let's try to get into his presence. But far more, the cross where Jesus died says, God should be feared. He's so far from watering down his standards to fit with us that his son had to die to pay for us disobeying him. And the cross says God is to be desired. He is so loving that the father planned 
And the son agreed to be struck dead in our place so that we could know God. Have him as our father. Be cared for him, loved by him. Children, I wonder if you know the story, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Great story, well worth getting to know. Who's, who's the main character in The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe? Who's most important? Well, it's Aslan. There's this person called Aslan. Who's he supposed to represent? He's supposed to represent Jesus. It's very interesting. There are these children called Peter, Edmund, Susan and Lucy. And they end up in this country called Narnia. And they hear that there is this king, Aslan. And after a while, they're rather shocked to find out he's a lion. And Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who they're talking to, well, they say, a lion? Is he safe? And either Mr. or Mrs. Beaver, I can't remember which, say, safe? He's not a tame lion, but he is good. Get that? He's not a tame lion, but he is good. And that's, the writer is telling us something about Jesus. He's telling us something about God. God isn't tame. He's not domesticated to fit into our box and at what we think is acceptable. But he is good. He is immensely generous. And he invites you to ask and receive from him. On his terms, his terms are very simple. Turn from your sin and put your trust in his son. And then discover oh, how good he is. He's so good. David couldn't keep his joy in. Let's look at verse 14 and 15. David, wearing a linen ephod, danced before the Lord with all his might, while he and the entire house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouts and the sound of trumpets. And uh, his wife thinks he's pretty embarrassing and undignified. But he can't keep his joy in because he can approach God and get blessing. Verse 12 The Lord had blessed the household of Obed-Edom. What are these blessings? I don't know. We're not told. It might be health. It might be wealth. It might be fertility of all sorts. Those are the sorts of blessings you find in the Old Testament. But those Old Testament things were pictures. You get to Jesus and on the cross, you find he's opening up the way to God. So we can approach God and know him as our father, caring for us, protecting us providing for us, listening to our prayers and giving what's good for us, taking us on the way to heaven. You know, children, when I was in my mid-teens, I wasn't a Christian, but God was starting to to make me think about him. And I remember a time when I was thinking, ah, it would be such a relief to know my sins are forgiven and I'm safe from hell. That would be such a relief. That would be so wonderful to know that. And then a couple of years later, I became a Christian. And when I became a Christian, I discovered there's so much more. It is wonderful. My sins are forgiven and I'm safe from hell, but I've discovered there's so much more. Along the way, God gives so much more. Should we be any less joyful than David? This has something to say about what we're doing now, here, now, this moment, in this building. A bit like this. Imagine David uh, on his way into Jerusalem. Can you try and imagine it? 
It's very different from our sort of world, so it's hard to, but imagine there's this big capital city, Jerusalem, well, I suppose small by our standards, but it would look impressive with its city walls and its big gates and its soldiers outside, and they're going into the city walls through the gates, and there are trumpets sounding, and there are sacrifices being made every few steps. And and there's a big celebration, and everyone's come out, and it's a grand occasion. Try to imagine it. And what we're doing here, it's so ordinary in comparison, isn't it? We're in this fairly nice but ordinary brick building, sitting on very ordinary orange chairs, and listening to a talk with a bit of a prayer hymn sandwich around it. So ordinary, isn't it? Nothing like what David's doing. No, says the book of Hebrews. Do you remember the very beginning of the service we read Hebrews 12? No, says the book of Hebrews. It may not have outward grandness, but, Hebrews 12 says, you have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, to the city, not of David, but of the living God. Not to hundreds of Israelites lined along the road, but to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. You have come to the God of God, the judge of all, and you have come to Jesus. In other words, it says when we meet as a church, ordinary as it looks and feels, we're joining with the angels. They're in the presence of God, and they certainly have reverence. That awareness of his being terrifyingly holy and stunningly generous. And so it says they're in joyful assembly. And we're joining with them. And we should be like them. You know, Hebrews 12 is very significant. Because if you've got anything in your mind of thinking 2 Samuel 6, that's Old Testament, it's all different now, you must read Hebrews 12. You see, when you get to the New Testament, it doesn't say, now let's dial down how awesome and frightening God is. Let's tone it down. That was, that was high in the, in the Old Testament. We're going to tone that down a bit. No, it says... Our God is a consuming fire. Not a warm yourself by it on a cold winter day fire. A consuming, that means burn you up fire. It doesn't tone down God's terrifying holiness. It tones up the joy and thankfulness that he causes. It says you're joining with the angels in joyful assembly. It says you're coming to Jesus. The Jesus who loved you and gave himself for you. And then it ends with this. Hebrews 12 ends with, let us be thankful and so worship God with reverence. It's very precise there. Notice what it says. Let us be thankful and so worship God with reverence. You see, it's when we see how generous God is. When we take in God's love. When we see what he's given us through Jesus dying and we're filled with joyful thankfulness, then we'll have proper reverence. Because reverence doesn't mean mean being miserable. It doesn't mean being quiet and solemn. It means awareness of God's awesome holiness and his stunning generosity. And you see them both best in Jesus as he dies for sinners on the cross. So, how then can we be dull 
or sleepy or lacking joy. How then can we ever sing all that thrills my soul is Jesus as if the thing that would most thrill us is if this service would get over and done with and we could go and have a cup of tea? How can we be satisfied as long as we're comfortable and things are done our way? Isn't that a bit like Michael? If you don't know what I mean, read about Michael at the end of 2 Samuel 6. How can we then excuse that by misnaming it reverence? When reverence is awareness of this amazingly holy but stunningly generous God. Such awareness that we obey. We're careful in life and in what we do here, it must be done his way. Such awareness of God that there's intensity to our worship. Nothing casual, nothing lukewarm, nothing less than the joy that David had. Or to put it in better New Testament terms, nothing less than rejoicing in the Lord. Let's pray for that now.